It's good to see you all this morning, but sadly, I have bad news for you. You will all struggle in your faith. Now, especially those who are older saints are nodding their head in agreement. Yes, many, many times. For some of you, that might be news. It's not really the thing that we lead with when we're trying to share with people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't start with, and you will struggle with this right? There are definitely days where faith comes easily and God seems very big, very real, very near. And I pray that those days only continue to increase in my life and only increase in your life. But there will be days where you have less hope, where God seems distant and you are unsure of what you seem to be sure of at one point in life. And we all think that our faith is going to be this kind of straight line growth in life. But reality is, it seems like there's moments where we have less faith than we thought we did just the moment before. As though we trust God less, we trust God less now than we did previously. And we find that we have very real doubts. I mean, for some of us, that can become very severe. It can lead to very real and deep depression. It also leads to other things. Right now, one of the buzzwords of the day in Christianity is 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 uh, as our deconstruction, right? The process where people begin to pull apart their faith and at the end of the day, tend to be left with no real faith at all. You know, we, we started this, this new series in Ephesians last week talking about how we all want to find our identity in Jesus Christ. Our hope, our salvation, our future, and our today is all wrapped up in who we are because of what God did for us as the God-man Jesus. You know, ours is not a religion of just mere intellect, but it is one about relationship and identity, who we are in relationship to God in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting then when you think about our identity that doubt, doubt or our struggle with faith is not an identity, but it's actually our struggle with our identity. It's when we're having a hard time believing that what we know is true about us is still really true given the circumstances around us. <clears throat> to say that you are doubting or lacking faith is to simply say that you're not sure that you can see the truth of your identity at any given moment is actually true. You know, God is very fair to present this as a very real problem and reality that we all will face. And we see it throughout scripture at different times. You know, Psalm 73 says this, <clears throat> my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is Asaph, a Levite, one of the priests of God, saying that when he looked at the word, world, he almost slipped away. He almost wanted to follow what they were doing because it looked more enticing to him than what he was putting his faith in. And we see this even when we come to the New Testament. Poor Thomas, forever labeled as doubting Thomas, right? I mean, we come to places like this in John 20 where it says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand on, into his side, I will never believe. Let's be honest, you probably would have done the same thing. If your friends were telling you that the person you just knew and loved died three days later was raised, you probably want to see some proof as well. Right? And I'm, I, part of our faith that is distinct from, from Thomas's is we put our faith in those eyewitness accounts. And we trust what they see and saw and put our faith in that. But God doesn't shy away from the reality that we will have doubt and struggles in our faith, especially about our identity. We see it around us every day. Right? Young children have to constantly fight through the, the problem of their identity and believe that even when their mom and dads discipline them, that they are still loved and cared for. 
We even have that problem in our business environment. To receive criticism at your work sometimes makes you feel like you really aren't a valued employee anymore or that you are wanted there. And, and this trust in our identity being secure is particularly difficult when things in life get really hard. Uh, when you don't get that job you've been looking for, when you continue to argue and argue again and again with your friend or your spouse about the same things, and when you get that health diagnosis that wasn't very good, or when someone you love dearly dies. As a believer, it can be hard to trust that God is for you in those difficult moments. And look, what, look what David said in Psalm 13. He said, how long, O Lord, how long, Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I mean, David, David, the, the chosen king, the one with whom God made a covenant, promised to be with him, always felt this separation from God. Where are you? How are you for me? What is going on? It's often like Asaph and Thomas and David, we all struggle with doubt and faith, and God knows that. And he presents that as a very real part of our path in sanctification and growth, that we will have those moments. And by his grace, he gives us two different things to look at consistently through scripture when we are having those moments, when we are doubting, when faith seems small. The first solution is a subjective solution. It's a call to look at our life, to examine it, and to see by God's grace the things that he has been doing in us and the different ways that he has worked in our lives that we are now different than we were before. And we come to passages like this in 2 Corinthians that say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, I imagine there's, there's many of us in this room who, especially if you came to faith later in life, can look at your life and can see the trajectory that you were on and see the change that God wrought in your heart when you look at what's different. And, and I pray that God has given all of us little glimpses, moments of growth where you can look back and see what you were like versus where you are at today. If you're like me and you go down this subjective route, more often than not, all I see is the things I'm failing at. Right? I would come to a section like this in 2 Corinthians and be like, put yourself to the test and be like, yep, I'm failing. Clearly then, I'm not in Jesus Christ. That's the temptation that we have and we spiral into sometimes from the subjective perspective. You know, and praise God that he gives us another thing for when those moments aren't as easy to see. Something that's not subjective, something that's more objective. I mean, look what the author of Hebrews says to us. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Or as it says later on in chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. God's other standard is much more objective. And he says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. God wants us to give us another standard that is not dependent on us, not dependent on what we see, not dependent on what we feel, but is objectively grounded in God himself. And that's exactly what is happening here in Ephesians 1. Paul is turning towards this kind of a project. He's not trying to help us understand and subjectively assess what is going on in our lives, but Paul wants us to look at the beauty of the glory of God and what he alone has done so that we can find something secure. 
You know, he, that own examination of ourselves isn't bad as we saw in Scripture. It's one of the things we're called to look at again and again. It goes hand in hand with this idea. But at times, that one's hard to see. And so God wants us to have this objective reality. And when you think about it, that's an extremely gracious thing of God to do for us. To stop, to give us insight into his mind, to give us insight into his choices, knowing that as sinners, our vision is going to be very difficult at times. We're not going to see rightly even our own hearts, let alone others. And so to tell us what he has done, who he is and how he has wanted only good for us is an amazing grace. He, he's creating for us a bedrock of truth, a, a foundation that's not going to shift at times where it can seem in the world that we live in this place that's an ocean of waves, even with our own emotions, tossing us back and forth and what we trust in. And last week, we said that Paul's sentence starts at Ephesians 1, 3 and goes all the way on through through 14. So I'm going to start there this morning. And he says here at the beginning of the sentence, blessed be or blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul is telling the Ephesians, he's telling me and you, that God is to be blessed because and deserves our praise and honor and our glory because of what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's what we started talking about last week. And he tells us that he's given us every spiritual blessing, but that's in the heavenlies. We don't see all of them today. But then he tells us that while that was going on, this happened, that that was even as he chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. I mean, the simplest reading of this phrase, chose us, is Paul, us, the Corinthians, I mean, the Ephesians, all the believers in Jesus Christ before we did anything to choose him. That is the assurance and the objective good news that Paul wants us to see, that we are chosen in him, that is, in Jesus you know, God did this amazing thing, however this worked for him, where he pondered in his mind what he was going to do in creation. And then he, he pondered and thought upon Jesus, one of the persons of the Trinity, and their arrangement to somehow make people with free will, yet knowing that would cause sin and that Jesus would come, be enjoined forever as a God-man, that he might die our death on the cross and that we might receive his righteousness that we would receive the blessing that Paul has been saying here at the very beginning of Ephesians means that we would be the saints, the holy ones, who can come back into right relationship with God and know him face to face. And Paul says that we are called to come back and walk with God because of what Jesus did for us. Now, I know this is a debated section of Scripture. And, and nothing I'm going to say here today should be taken to mean that I think that those who think differently than what I'm going to preach are not saved nor that I think people who think differently do not love the Lord deeply. But my main concern this morning is that I think some well-meaning scholars and pastors, and even some who don't mean well, ha have taken a difficult passage and robbed us, robbed Christians, of one of the most beautiful assurances that we are meant to have to help us when these times get difficult. They've taken away that beautiful objective reality that Paul points us to, that other places in Scripture point us to again and again. And I want to humbly try to pass you back that verse. 
that it might become a, a beautiful marker, a marker as large as the moon in your life. That, that if, if our life in walking with God is looking upon the sun like Jesus Christ, the very son of God, that in moments when it seems like night and dark, you have a beacon rightly reflecting back to you how much God loves you. And if that is the reality that you already hold dear this morning in your heart, I want to remind you of the glory of a God who has chosen you. And the, the most common argument when we come to this passage and that this verse really doesn't mean that God chose believers individually, centers around this word, us. And people look at that term and say, yeah, God chose us, but that simply means he chose the church, he chose believers in general, but each person individually has to find their way into that group and become part of it. That may sound a little weird when you think about the word us, so let me give you an analogy of what they're, they're trying to say in that argument. It's sort of like thinking about the Super Bowl right? Uh, they're, they're saying that the NFL has, has created teams, they've created rules and regulations, the teams have a pattern of playing each other, yet they don't decide who's going to win the Super Bowl, no matter what social media wants to say is going on with that. They just simply set the rules and the parameters and let the game itself play out. They're saying that the same is true in their argument with God, that God gave us a paradigm and rules, a process and ways that things played out, that God died on the cross for our sins, that it might be able for us to be forgiven, but we have to put our faith in God still. We still have to choose that for each of us to be brought into that. And the pushback on that would be simply that the word us rarely means the church or a really big group. right? You and I, when we think about that and we look at how Paul's talking throughout Ephesians 1 through 3, we would see that he most clearly and nearly seems to mean the Ephesians and himself, and then by proxy all of us as believers, but that's a hard argument to make. How do we get into the mind of Paul to know exactly what the word us means? Well, lucky for us, Paul's talked about this other places. We can look at 1 Corinthians 1, in the beginning there, where he says this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human, be no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to think about their own calling, their own process of coming to faith. It is clear here that he's talking about individuals and how they individually went about this process. That takes away the argument about the word us, at least here. And here, Paul is being very specific. He is looking at each and every single one of them and saying, God chose you. Paul's point here is to show the Corinthians, to show me and you that we were nothing special yet God chose us. I mean, Paul's entire point hinges on that reality here. And Paul doesn't look at us foolish, weak, low, despised people and say, well, you know, a broken clock's right at least twice a day. I guess you can kind of get your way in if God's rules allow for that. That's exactly the opposite of what he's trying to say here. The amazing thing is that God chose people like us, broken Low, despised by the world, nothing special by anyone's account. God is choosing the worst Red Rover team ever in the history of all mankind. That's what's beautiful, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, that he chose those people, not that they wandered in of their own accord. 
Even more, we have this very last verse that we talked about last week. This is one in the ESV that says, and because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus. And the more direct translation is, from God, you are in Jesus Christ. That's the point Paul's trying to make in Ephesians 1 and in Corinthians 1. In fact, when people see these two compared side by side, most people get to the place where they say, you know what, it does seem like Paul is saying that God chooses people. But you know what? That's just a weird Paul idea. Paul's the one carrying that in. That's not the bigger picture that Scripture wants to give us, especially not the New Testament. So we'll flip over to James. James says this, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are, you not, are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? You know, here we have James talking from a very different perspective. I mean, Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 are our personal perspective, wants us to look at ourselves. Here James is saying, look at how interpersonal relationships work. And in particular, James wants us not to look down on people who are poor. We talked about when we went through our James series about how the dynamics that were going on in their city and culture probably led to that. But, but what James wants us to see is that we don't look down on the poor. Why? Because God chose them. God chose them. Again, it's not as though they somehow found the right path and they did the good thing and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got in on the right path. No, they, just like me and just like you, were chosen by God. The playing field was level. There's nothing anyone did more important than the other. They find their value and purpose in God's choice, not their choice. You know, Paul is saying something very beautiful and deep and profound here. He's saying that God chose us, and not just as a possession or a trophy to show his greatness. Paul says that God chose us and that he chose us to be holy and blameless, and then he restates for us, in case you didn't catch what he meant or maybe you didn't believe what he said, and he says this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In case we're missing it, Paul restates the same statement, just uses different words. He tells us again what it means to be chosen and what it means to be made holy and blameless. He tells us that to be chosen means to be predestined, have a decision made before time by God's own will and counsel, and that being holy and blameless means we are now treated as beloved sons and daughters, adopted into the family of God. To pull apart the beauty of what God is doing here is a thread that begins to unravel all of Scripture and what God has done. Our God has always been a choosing God. And we can look back at God choosing Abraham from all the people of the world. We're told that righteousness was not accounted to Abraham because of anything he did, but before anything he did because of his faith. And we see that there was a God who called him before he even demonstrated that faith. And so much of that story of Abraham is meant to show us how much Abraham did not deserve that. We see almost immediately Abraham offering up his wife as his sister to other leaders so things would go well with them. We see Abraham and Sarah taking God's promises into their own hands and trying to make it happen through Hagar and Ishmael. Again and again, we see that by all subjective accounts, Abraham does not deserve this. 
Abraham is failing. Abraham doesn't even keep the faith at times that he says he's going to keep and trust the Lord for the promises that God has given him. But by objective measures, he is God's. And God is securing his relationship and covenant with Abraham by his own doing and by his choosing of Abraham. We see God continue on that through, through Isaac and Jacob till we get to this people, this mighty nation as it was promised to Abraham. And we come into the story when we can see that they have done nothing. Before they did anything as a people, they were promised to be God's people through Abraham. And here we see them in a land where they are a slave and so weak that they cannot even stop Pharaoh from killing their children. And it's at this moment that God remembers and says that they are his chosen ones and he brings them out. And again, we see a story where they show again and again that they will fail at their faith. They will not do it rightly. Oh, we see them grumbling immediately as they leave the land going forth with Moses. He goes up on the mountain for just a couple days and they turn fully into debauchery and making idols. These are a people who again and again show that they are not going to keep the faith that they should keep. And yet what we see objectively is that God is faithful. And by his own standard, he has chosen them and he will love them. And when prophesying about God's people later on, Ezekiel says that God's people are a valley of dry bones. Now, that is not the imagery of people who just need to turn a little bit and have faith in God. I mean, so often the imagery of salvation is this one of being tossed this life preserver of Jesus Christ, and that we just need to put our faith in him, grab on and trust that he can get us to the other side. And no doubt in our subjective experience, we have a moment where we realize we are being tossed to and fro in the waves of life, drowning in our own sin and despair, and we graciously call out to God, save me in Jesus Christ. And yet before that moment, we were on the bottom of the ocean, bones, lifeless, needing the very breath of God to breathe into us that we might be animated and that we might even want to contemplate faith before we could even contemplate grasping for the good news that he made us to receive. The entire story of God's interaction with his people is of God choosing his people, of God only doing what God could do, softening hearts, opening eyes, letting ears hear that his people might know him. And to diminish the beauty of God's choosing here in Ephesians is to diminish the beauty of the entire storyline of scripture and a God who sovereignly chooses his people, where he makes covenants with them that only he can keep and where he joyfully does this for us in Jesus Christ that we might come alive and that's what this last piece is talking about here in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. God did this in love and in the beloved one. God did not look on us in disdain, but did this out of his love for us. He happily chose me and you in Christ before time. And in Jesus, his, his beloved son, we're told in Colossians, all of the promises that God has given to his people throughout the Old Testament are now true for you in him. And God did all of that so that he might receive praise. Not a vain glory praise that's only self-centered, though that would be right of God, but a praise that comes because of the grace and mercy that he has shown me and you in Jesus Christ. Friends, your 
identity is in Jesus Christ. You and I, we are wrapped up in God's love because of the beauty of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, in the God-man. And that identity is secure because it rests most firmly and primarily on what God alone did, on his choosing of me and you. I want you to be encouraged this morning, Rev. I want you to be encouraged in the midst of your struggles. Objectively, God has done so much for you in Jesus Christ. In fact, he has done it all. When you doubt your faith and your walk, and when the process of examining your walk subjectively seems to to fall short, when you begin to see yourself and only ponder the bad which you see, remember that you are found in Jesus Christ because God has chosen you. That he chose you and will not leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13 says. Again, if this is a hard doctrine for you, you are not saved by this understanding. But the elders and I, we would want to encourage you that we think you are missing a beautiful marker to come back to again and again in your process of working out your faith with fear and trembling. A beautiful knowledge of knowing that God has chosen you. And if God has chosen you, if God is the one who awakened you from the very beginning, that you might even contemplate faith, he will not fail. He will not fail to keep you to the very end. Your faith is not reliant first and foremost on your ability to keep your own faith. It rests on the firm bedrock of God's perfect good and immovable choice to choose you. I mean, for me, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 feels like the marrying of subjective and objective. When I think about myself and I think about my sins, the sins that I know in my own mind that no one else sees, how much I know I fail, all the different ways that that I don't meet up, and I think about what it would have taken for me to even begin to consider faith. I can't see how that would have happened outside of a God who spoke to me first. I mean, if I had been good enough to choose this faith, then why couldn't God have required me to again and again choose the right things to do next, continue to grow and make myself perfect over time? Yet that's where my subjective reality needs an objective truth. That that flicker of a flame of faith in my life came because God first spoke to me. That God in his grace through his Holy Spirit opened my eyes, softened my prideful heart, caused me to think and gaze upon him in beauty and joy that I might see my salvation in the very Son of God. This morning, I I pray that you receive this idea as good news for you. Yes, this passage will leave you with questions. This passage will leave you with questions like, well, what does that mean for the people God doesn't choose? How is that fair? Why me and not them? And frankly, that's not what this verse is trying to answer. This verse is trying to give you a beautiful marker to come back to again and again when your faith seems small, when you doubt, to remember that it was God who chose you. That the faith that you have came because of God who spoke to you and moved in your heart through his very Holy Spirit. I pray that you find that in your challenges with faith and in your doubt, you come back again and again as the psalmists do to a God 
who gives you this kind of love, the kind of God who's chosen you and by his work alone, you rest in. As Asaph gets to in Psalm 73, you guide me with your counsel, but afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom I have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works, all the things that he has done where I have failed, all the things he has done where I could not have done it. Or Psalm 13, David, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, a salvation we couldn't have even stroven towards. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I pray this morning that you rejoice that your identity is in Jesus Christ and that you have that identity because God chose you. This morning, I pray that that's what you celebrate with me. If you are a believer here this morning, that you would celebrate that with us as we take communion. This beautiful plan that God had and how he would work out the ability to choose us, lowly, despised sinners through Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet have that kind of faith, or maybe you feel like you had that faith, but it has but dwindled down to nothing, come back to the Lord God who chose you. The Lord God who, if you have sensed that, that feeling of faith, that, that desire to even begin to ponder it, that there is a God who is behind that as a loving, adoptive father who chose you who is bringing you into his family. Turn and trust in faith this morning in that God. Don't just remember with us through communion, but do the very real thing by coming to him in faith. We're gonna take communion after this next song, so if you would grab the elements in the back and on the side and then hold them, we'll take them together. Would you pray with me? Lord God, again and again, it seems like we are pressed to look into deep matters in Scripture deep matters of who you are and what you've done that can boggle us. Lord God, would we be humble as we come across those things? And Lord God, thank you for providing such wonderful good news. What a sweet thing that you would let us know your mind, that we could have confidence that not only did we have this experience of putting our faith and our trust in you, but that that happened because you first adopted us, because you first chose us because you first sent your Holy Spirit into our lives to soften us, to let us see and even ponder and wonder upon the beauty of the possibility of a salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord God, thank you for doing what we could not have done on our own, for taking dead people and breathing life into us. Lord God, what a sweet reality. Would we fall back on that joy again and again throughout our lives, Lord God, and especially when we struggle, especially when we doubt God, when by all subjective measures it looks like we are failing, would we come back to the reality that you have chosen us? And if you have chosen us, you will never let us go. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.